1: It's a ton of interesting legal news that I am going to try to go through fairly quickly, and I'll invite you to comment. And then, uh, coming up in about twenty minutes, Elliot Gordon is going to be here. This week is the anniversary of the Beatles appearing on the Ed Sullivan Show. Ed Sullivan. Ed Sullivan. Ed Sullivan Show. Although that sounds kind of cool, Ed Sullivan Show. That's what they should have called it. You know, if they would have called it the Ed Sullivan Show, that show would still be on the air today. They would have found somebody else named Ed Sullivan to continue hosting it. But uh follow-up to a story that we had been covering this week. A Michigan jury has convicted a school shooter's mother of involuntary manslaughter in in a first-of-its-kind trial to determine whether she had any responsibility in the deaths of four students in 2021.
2: We find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. On count three as to involuntary manslaughter regarding Hannah Hannah, St. Juliana, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. And in count four of involuntary manslaughter against Justin Schilling, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter.
1: Prosecutors say Jennifer Crumbly was grossly negligent when she failed to tell Oxford High School that the family had guns, including a nine millimeter handgun that her son Ethan used at a shooting range on the weekend before the November 30th, 2021 attack. The jury, which included some gun owners. So it was not a jury just of uh, gun hating individuals. There are also a lot of people that grew up with guns. They began deliberations Monday morning. They sent a note to the judge that afternoon asking if they could infer anything from prosecutors not presenting Ethan Crumbly or others to explain specifically how he got access to a gun at home to shoot up Oxford High School. And the judge said the answer is no. You're only allowed to consider the evidence that was admitted in the case. This is really remarkable. I'm a little surprised by this. I think these parents were certainly negligent. And if she got convicted, you can bet the husband is going to be convicted when he goes on trial next month because he actually bought the son the gun. I Were they so negligent that this is involuntary manslaughter? I would have thought no, but the jury disagreed. You know, I got a note when I was discussing this this week with uh, Dominic Carter. I got this note from a kind of curmudgeonly guy who writes to me every day. He hates everybody. And he talked about this case and our analysis of it. He said, look, is it parental neglect? Sure. Is it failure to provide care? Sure. But is it criminal behavior that caused homicides? No. The This is his words, not mine. The mom's garbage, but I wouldn't convict her or the dad. Every parent screws up. Many are abusive and neglectful. Some are even evil. But without intent and conspiracy, meaning something to the effect of here's a gun, take care of the bullies, there's no case for homicide. And, you know, he said homicide, but I think he probably meant involuntary manslaughter. So I was a little surprised by this particular case, uh, but not totally surprised. I think it's a very, very interesting case. And I think this is going to bode very poorly for the parents of any other future school shooter. Because now that they got away with this – got away with it – now that the prosecutors proved their case in this jurisdiction, I think you're going to see prosecutors try this everywhere. Now, the big uh, story that everybody's talking about in legal circles is that uh, Donald Trump – does not have presidential immunity and can be prosecuted on charges of plotting to overturn the 2020 election. This was the uh, D.C. Court of Appeals. Uh, They ruled so uh, Trump had claimed in the landmark legal case that he was immune from criminal charges for acts he said fell within his duties as president. I never bought this argument I thought this was always weak. And uh, honestly, I, I don't think the Trump lawyers really bought it either. I think this was something that uh, was just done really to buy them time. Um, because I think Trump, with a lot, all these federal cases certainly, is playing beat the clock. He's trying to delay as much as possible in the hopes that he gets elected. And then once he's elected, he'll either stop the prosecution himself or... Or he'll just pardon himself, right? So the idea is to make sure none of these cases result in a guilty verdict, at least the federal cases, by the time he's elected president. Now, I think it's very – first of all, this was the absolute correct decision, Uh, putting aside the politics of it. The president cannot be immune from prosecutions for crimes. He can't be. Because it it just, as the 57-page opinion makes clear, this would totally destroy separation of powers. To say a president can't do anything, excuse me, can do anything and get away with it without any fear of criminal repercussions, I mean, it's insane. So, as I understand it, they are going to have, I believe, 45 days the trump defense team to hear this case uh, to ask for the entire dc court of appeals to hear this case on bank and uh, i i think the Judge Chutkin aspect of the trial can still go forward. I don't think it stops the clock on that. Although, don't quote me on that. I My quick reading of the 57-page, uh, and, and again, it was a, more of a skimming, of this 57-page opinion. Well, first of all, I don't understand why it took so long. I mean, this, to me, there's not much new information here. They basically came to the same conclusion that Judge Chutkin did. I think this could have been done in a day. So... Uh, They're correct on the law, but uh, I think this does not stop the clock on this, which is what the Trump folks were hoping for. But again, don't quote me on that. I'm not a lawyer or a legal expert. But um, now they're going to have 45 days to ask for an en banc hearing of this by the same Court of Appeals. And then, assuming the en banc hearing results in the same uh, situation, then they'll then have 60 days to ask the Supreme Court. To hear this, I I do think the Supreme Court is going to hear this and because it is an important precedent for future presidents. There's been a lot of people commenting on this with varying views. Uh, Lawrence Tribe, who's a Harvard law professor and a longtime Trump critic, was on CNN. You'll never guess what he said.
0: All of those arguments that he made to put himself above the law were dismembered piece by piece methodically in this historic opinion, which, as you've indicated, is likely to be studied by law students for generations, especially because there's very little reason for the U.S. Supreme Court to weigh in.
1: What's interesting to me about this is what this portends for the future. You know, uh, I think it was, I don't remember who, it was Russell and White Plains, who called me a couple of weeks ago during Ask Frank Anything, and he asked me, could a future Justice Department prosecute President Obama? If Trump gets elected, could his Justice Department prosecute Obama for droning American citizens, Anwar Alwaki and his son? And I thought about that, and I've been thinking about it a great deal, and I've done actually a lot more research to this, and I think the answer is yes. And I think now that's actually likely. And some of President Trump's allies have warned that this could trigger a series of political reprisals. Donald Trump Jr. went on Twitter and said, If this becomes the norm, would a Trump DOJ prosecute Barack Obama for droning an American? You know what the answer should be? Yes. Because presidents are not immune from prosecution. There is no reason that without a, without a court order or anything, without any sort of due process, President Obama, who's killed more people than, with drones than any Nobel Peace Prize winner in history, there is no reason that President Obama should not be tried for war crimes. You cannot just simply kill an American citizen because he happens to be the son of a terrorist. You can't kill him with a drone, especially without a court order to do so. So I know that Trump Jr. is saying this to be kind of hyperbolic, and he's saying this in opposition to what the D.C. Court of Appeals said. But I'll be honest, and I'm not for these political prosecutions, whether it's Democrats going after their political opponents or Republicans going after their political opponents. If Trump is elected, he's no fan of Obama or Trump. Excuse me. He's no fan of Obama or Bush. Both of these men should be charged with war crimes. And I would love to see a Trump DOJ, given this precedent, which I do think will be upheld by the Supreme Court, I would love to see a Trump Justice Department go after both Obama and Bush for war crimes. In the case of Obama, for the uh, droning of American citizens without any sort of court order. And in the case of Bush, for the substantial war crimes that were, that were uh, committed during the war in Iraq. And you know what? I think they would be doing it for bad reasons. They would be doing it for whatever Trump calls it, retribution. But doesn't mean the prosecution is not meritorious. Both of these men should have to answer for their crimes. And I think this was a very sound decision by the uh, courts here. Other legal scholars have varying views. In fact, uh, Alan Dershowitz on his podcast, The Show had. um, He left the door open to maybe the Supreme Court would find that presidents have immunity, but my take on it is, and you can watch it for yourself, my take on it was that that no, uh, the presidents don't have uh, immunity and the Supreme Court is unlikely to find that they do, even though it is a conservative majority. Hey, if you want to comment on any of these legal cases, you can do so. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Then, I love it when the hunter becomes the hunted, you know? There's something so satisfying about seeing people that used to put people in prison be found guilty of crimes themselves. Whether you like them, whatever the strength of the case, there is something that... I don't know. Maybe it's schadenfreude. Maybe it's the fact that, hey, they screwed us over a bunch of times. It's now it's their time to get their comeuppance. But when someone like uh, John Mitchell, who was the attorney general of the United States, who put all sorts of people in prison, when he ends up in prison himself, you think, okay, it's a little bit of justice there. Uh, Now, that is precisely what is going on in Baltimore with Marilyn Mosby. Marilyn Mosby, who kind of became a national star in terms of prosecutors with this Freddie Gray case, uh, she was the top prosecutor for the city of Baltimore. She was convicted yesterday on one count of mortgage fraud, concluding a lengthy criminal trial in which she, again, Baltimore's top prosecutor, testified that she unwittingly made false statements on loan applications to buy two Florida vacation homes. The jury announced a split verdict um, Tuesday night after deliberating for most of the day, finding her not guilty on a second charge of um, mortgage fraud. So it was kind of a mixed bag. I'm not sure what kind of prison time she's looking at here. Here she was coming out of the courtroom. Are you Are you? Ha- Happy with the decision to take the stand? No comment. No comment. No comment. She had no comment. She was previously convicted on two counts of perjury in a separate criminal trial that took place in November. She has not been sentenced in either case. Her husband was the uh, president of the city council there, and uh, he is no stranger to controversy himself, but sometimes Nick Mosby, that is. uh, Sometimes that is um, a resume enhancement in some sectors, right? But uh, he took the witness stand last week in his wife's. Trial, and Nick Mosby did, and he wept about the early days of his marriage. Apparently, those tears were not good enough to get a not guilty verdict. If you want to comment, you can. 800 848 22 80 80-848-92-22. And the the other thing that was big news yesterday, and I'm not going to spend more than 10 seconds on this, is the House of Representatives voting not to um not to impeach um, Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary. Of course they shouldn't. There's no chance that this impeachment would have gone anywhere in the Senate. It would have been a giant waste of time and money. And even as conservative legal scholars like Jonathan Turley have said, there's no basis For impeachment on policy differences. It would have been just a dog and pony show, and kudos to the Republicans, including the conservative Republicans that voted with the Democrats to save the country, this charade of impeachment. You know, I've talked about this when they tried to impeach Trump twice. I talked about this when they tried to impeach Bill Clinton. I talked about this when they're trying to impeach Joe Biden. Now, for any impeachment to be worth even the point of hearings you really have to have some bipartisan support. Without any sort of bipartisan support in these impeachments, it's all just an exercise in mental masturbation. In fact, it's worse. Because what it is, is it's just an excuse for the people that are putting forward these impeachment articles to uh, raise money. The It's an opportunity for them to... Mug for the cameras to become viral on social media. It's a waste of time. Unless these impeachments have any sort of hope of actually uh, getting some bipartisan support, you're never going to get two-thirds necessary to remove, to convict. So what's the point? Get on with the business of governing. So um, that's some of the legal news that people are excited about. The Trump immunity, the mom convicted, Marilyn Mosby— and more and you know i brought this up with dr sky i think the fact that the ntsb has made this finding about boeing sending this plane to alaska airlines with no bolts in that panel that is devastating news for boeing and i think you're definitely going to see a class action suit of some sort of everybody that was on that airplane and maybe others that have flown Boeing planes. And I think they're going to get a very generous settlement. 800-848-9222. Uh, we have uh, Elliot Gordon coming up in just a bit. Um, let, let me take a quick call here from Jim. Hello, Jim. Frank, how are you? Well, I, uh, I have a little me? bit of a frog in my throat, but I'd like to think I'm doing pretty well.
0: All right. Yeah, I think uh, what we were saying before about uh, presidential immunity—I think it's a slippery slope that's going to turn this country into a third-world banana republic. Because what's going to stop uh, Governor uh, Abbott in D- in uh, Texas has, having his attorney general indict President Biden right now for the border? Um. Couple of things. Does that make, does yeah, that make uh,
1: sense to you? Well, uh, no, right? Because one, well, the first thing that um, what would stop him is a, a jury. Right. Uh, Because a a jury and a judge. Right. Because it would be a a frivolous it would be a frivolous prosecution um, and it wouldn't be upheld on appeal. The second thing is the voters, both the attorney general and the governor of Texas. They're accountable to the voters. They would have to answer to them. Um, Three is what the court said here is not that you they didn't say that there's no presidential immunity. They said immunity only extends to um, basically policy decisions, right? So you can't prosecute someone for um, uh, cutting off food stamps and sending people into poverty for instance. You can't prosecute someone for for murder if they sign a bill legalizing the death penalty. Those Those are my examples, not the examples that the court used. But to say that a president can commit commit crimes while he's president and then never be prosecuted, I think the court rightly decided, including with one Republican judge, that 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 would lead to something that the founders never envisioned. They never imagined that presidents would be totally above the law, because at that point, you're not a president, you're a monarch.
0: Yeah, but you know what, what I'm saying, you're going to start prosecutors all over the country, could start indicting presidents and former presidents and then what is that going to do for our image of a country well we're but, almost but 250 so, years of age with right. the country's almost 250 years old but jim jim
1: you say that's what they do doing
0: good until the last like 10 years or so when all this politics uh.
1: First of all, I'm not. I'm not clear. I, I'm, I don't agree with that. I think we've seen 40 or 50 years of this bipartisan duopoly uh, bring us to the place that we that we're in, and I think that's actually one of the reasons that Donald Trump was able to win in 2016 because people were so fed up with uh, what's been going on for these last 40 years, not only in terms of free trade and immigration and these endless foreign wars, but a whole bunch of other things. But um, the uh, you mention that uh, this is what they do in third world countries. No, and uh, Jim, this is what they do in healthy democracies in Israel they're in the midst of prosecuting the current prime minister that doesn't make them a third world country they have they've prosecuted previous prime ministers before i believe it was ehud olmert in brazil the guy that was that's president now was recently in prison. They put him in prison as a former president in Italy, which has a very robust democracy. They uh, put the prime minister, the former prime minister Berlusconi, into prison there. In in France, they did the same thing there with um, I believe it was uh, Sarkozy. With Sarkozy, uh, they put him into prison and convicted him of a crime. When you, when you prosecute a former president or a former prime minister in the case of Italy or Israel for breaking the law, that's not a mark of a third world nation. That's the mark of a nation that holds its, its leaders accountable. And I'm hoping now that it'll result in Obama and Bush being held accountable. Jim, thank you for the call. I'm sorry we don't have more time to chat about this, but we have Elliot Gordon waiting in the wings straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight to be continued.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. He's your numero uno.
1: It's The Other
0: Side of Midnight with Frank Marano.
1: to hold your hand. Well, it was 60 years ago this week they performed this song on the Ed Sullivan. (laughs) I cannot say Ed Sullivan. Ed Sullivan. (laughs) These guys will attest I'm not drunk. For some reason, I cannot say the TV show that was hosted by Ed Sullivan. I could say Ed Sullivan. I could say show. But for some reason, I cannot say Ed Sullivan show. I keep uh, turning it into Ed Sullivan show or as Ed Sullivan himself would probably say, Ed Sullivan Shoe. Well, somebody who not only has a better command of the English language than I do, but has a lot of the great stories and backstory regarding that appearance and the Beatles uh, invading America 60 years ago this week, is uh, Elliot Gordon, entrepreneur, former aide to Mayor Giuliani, a producer and a talent agent, and a great friend to this show. Elliot, it's great to talk to you. Frank,
2: when I heard you mention my name before, I got all excited. It's 2.20 in the
1: morning, but I'm revved
2: up and ready to go.
1: We are thrilled to have you. Now, a lot of folks may not remember what a big deal this was 60 years ago. Some folks will. But first, set the stage. How important was Ed Sullivan to popular culture at the time in 1964? What was Ed Sullivan's place in making stars and in the media in general at that point?
2: America got together Sunday nights at 8 watching The Ed Sullivan Show. We're talking about 40, 50 million viewers on a regular off Sunday night. He owned the world. Everybody was there. And I got a buddy, he's 90 years old now, Vince Calandra, he was one of the producers. And he told me, he said, uh, Ellie said, at that time, the reason for variety shows were because families had one television set. So we needed a comedian for pop. We needed a singer for mom. We needed a rock band for sis and a juggler for Tommy. And we had it all. And Ed went all over the world world looking for the best talent on earth, and he produced. Ed actually found the Beatles. Vince was with him because they were changing planes to see another act in uh, in, uh, Europe at Heathrow Airport in uh, Great Britain, and they saw a crowd around an airplane, and Ed wanted to find out. He found out it's a hot new rock band, and he said, I want to have them on my show, and he got in touch with their manager, Brian Epstein, who said, hey, we are booked by a man named Sid Bernstein. To perform at Carnegie Hall on February twelfth of nineteen sixty four, so we could do the Sullivan show around that time. So people think that Ed Sullivan brought them to America. It was Sid Bernstein and and uh, Brian told him, call Sid and he'll give you all the information. Sullivan knew Sid as an agent, and he spoke to Sid about, hey, where do I pick these guys up to bring them to my show this Sunday before? And Sid said, hey, they will be at the Plaza. And that's how that, that came together as far as Ed Sullivan. But he owned the television world.
1: And remind folks of your relationship with Sid Bernstein. I know you guys were pretty close.
2: Sure. Sid Bernstein, I guess you could say I was his apprentice. I knew Sid for over 35 years. And there would be times where we would be on the phone four or five times a day. And Sid and I became very close. You know, it's very interesting. I would get Sid an endless amount of interviews because everybody, there was always a radio station somewhere doing a Beatle weekend and I would arrange for Sid to come on and talk about the time he picked up a newspaper in Times Square to do a homework assignment and he looked at the uh, entertainment section and he saw a music note four lads from Liverpool causing a stir. And he said, this looks interesting. And he kept following it in the papers because he took a course at the news school at night about foreign governments just to expand his mind. He was working as an agent during the day for General Artists Corporation. And he said, oh, I'm looking at England because my assignment was uh, uh, the England parliamentary system. And I'm looking in the entertainment section, one note, four last from Liverpool causing a stir one day. By the end of the week it was two lines. By the following week it was half a page in a photograph and he said I didn't realize it but at the time through the newspaper I was picking up in Times Square at the newsstand I was witnessing the birth of the Beatles. So I would get Sid interviews really constantly and over a 35 year period we became inseparable. So more than my mentor he became my friend friend. And not only my dear friend, but there's a man, Paul McCartney, who spent the rest of Sid's life as his dear friend.
1: Tell me about this clip we're about to play. Uh, This is Sid Bernstein speaking about uh, not only the Beatles, but uh, Brian Epstein. Set it up for us.
2: Sure. Very quickly. In other words, Sid uh, brought, when he uh, saw this in the newspapers, he brought that back to the head of his agency, Buddy Howe, and he said, hey, Buddy, there's something going on in Liverpool. I'm reading in the papers. I see photographs. There are kids online. There's a hot band out there, and Buddy says to Sid, hey, we got an office in London. We'll send one of our agents up to Liverpool to check it out. That's a long trip, Frank. That's like a two-hour drive. So about three weeks later, Buddy comes back into Sid's office, and he hands him a memo He said, this is the memo I got from our agent that we sent to Liverpool to see the Beatles. I said, Sid, what did the memo say? He said, the memo said, good band, but not right for American audiences. And Buddy says, we're going to turn down your your hunch, Sid. But Sid said, Elle, I saw those photographs of those kids online. They buy tickets. That's how I make my bread and butter as a promoter. I know Buddy's wrong. And Sid went about said, I'll do it myself. I'll bring them in myself. I said, Sid, how did you contact them? You couldn't Google Beetle Manager on Google. This is nineteen sixty two. He said, El, I'm having ice cream at a restaurant called an agent walks in who I knew very well, Bud Seligwell, and he said, hey, Sid, what's going on with you? And he said, Bud, I'm hot on a British band called The Beatles. I don't know who represents them. I want to bring them in. I don't know who to call. And Bud said, hey, Sid, I just got back from London. His name is Brian Epstein. I was working for him. They got records released in England by EMI, who owns Capitol Records. And he wanted me to go to the disc jockeys at the radio station to push some airplay. He said, Sid, it's very small. It's very local. You're building this thing up in your mind. It's nothing like you think it is. And he said, hey, bud, give me his number. He said he lives with his mother, Queenie Epstein, in London. Here's his mother. So Sid calls him. He speaks to his mother. She puts her son on the phone. And the first thing Brian says to Sid... What's wrong with you people in America? He said, I'm calling promoters. They aren't interested in the Beatles. He said, EMI called Capital, which they own, to release the Beatle records in the United States. They turned it down. They said, not worth the investment. He said, We are booked in the biggest music halls in England. We got dates for Germany. Italy and France, what's the deal with America? And Sid said, L, I I told them I've been following the Beatles in the newspapers, and I would like to be the first man to bring your band. And Brian never called them his band or the Beatles. He always said, my boys. He said, to bring your boys to America if you would allow me to do that. And Brian said, hey, Sid, uh, where are you going to present them? And Sid said, Al, I didn't even think about that. So I just threw out, uh, how about Carnegie Hall? And Brian said, that's class. When the Beatles come, when my boys come to New York, it's Carnegie Hall. And Sid said, well, how much money are you getting? He said, well, in the equivalent of dollars to pounds, in England, we're getting $2,000 a show. And Sid told me, he said, El, I was shooting dice. I just told him, Brian, I'll take two shows in one night for 6500 What do you think of that? And it blew Brian away, and he said, hey, we can't do it over the next few months. Let's do it a year from now, February of 64, and the only hook is that we get a record on the charts.
1: Wow. Uh, Well, here is uh, the man himself, Sid Bernstein, the man that brought the Beatles to America, talking about what occurred this week, 60 years ago.
0: I wanted to bring them, and I decided I'm going to bring them. And so I called Brian at his home. who was still be at home in Liverpool with his mother, Queenie. And I said, Mr. Epstein, I want to bring your group to America. I said, where? I wasn't prepared for that. But my favorite venue is in my own city. That's Carnegie Hall. As I'd like to bring them to Carnegie Hall. Now I hadn't heard their music. I'd only read about them in the English newspapers, and all they wrote about was this new group, The Beatles. I just felt I'd gone to something. I met them originally when they checked into the Plaza Hotel, prior to playing Carnegie Hall for me, and prior to playing at Sullivan's show, which was the most important television show in America at that time. They weren't show business They were young guys interested in the reception, thrilled at the reception given to them, looking out their window, down at the crowd in the square outside of the Plaza Hotel, which is quite a large square, which was filled with young people. And they kept saying, don't believe this. This is more exciting even than what we're getting in England where they were becoming superstars. I got the feeling that these boys were Liverpool boys and this is what they are. This is what they'll always be. And I feel no matter, with all the success that they had throughout the world, they were still products of Liverpool. I the Liverpool Shuffle. When you do a film that's successful, and that film was very successful, you become a film star. Unlike doing a concert where you play a chosen select number of theaters and venues, a film star gives you a, a new feeling of, hey, I've done it, and I can do it again, and I can do it even better. That's the message I got. They were still the very same guys. They were always the guys next door. It didn't change. I think Brian, although he didn't have the experience that I did with other entertainers, somehow acquired that experience quickly and was very respected. I heard criticism of Brian when I visited London and the famous ISO's restaurant, but I think it came out of jealousy. That's what I attributed to. I found him flawless. I find found him decent. I found him honest. I never made a contract with Brian. It's all done on the phone. Now this these things don't happen easily in our business. Usually need lawyers and more lawyers on your side and on their side. I didn't need a lawyer with Brian. He was thoroughly honest. Very creditable. He was one decent human being. And I miss him.
1: We're talking with uh, Elliot Gordon, uh, the – I would call him the keeper of the Sid Bernstein flame, not only a protege of the great Sid Bernstein, the man that brought the Beatles to America, but a close friend of his as well. He's an entrepreneur, a producer, and a talent agent in his own right. Elliot, what did the – Beatles' British invasion in 1964 mean for future British groups and maybe even future foreign groups in general? Did that sort of step the, set the stage for other groups like the Rolling Stones?
2: the damn broke by the Beatles. Now, when Sid brought the Beatles in, uh, he told me, he said, Al, he had to reveal to his boss that he was the promoter. He was doing it. And they actually, instead of firing him, because it was a violation of their uh, business code, that uh, they offered him a promotion and more money. But Sid said, Al, I didn't like being an agent. An agent is a salesman. You know, you call a promoter and you say, hey, do you want to buy Tony Bennett? Do you want to buy Joe Williams? He said, I like the action. So I had backers come to me. The man who originally lent them the money to make that deal with Brian Epstein was a friend from the Jewelry District called Abe Margulies, and another man from the Garment Center, Walter Hyman. And uh, Walter called Sid and said, hey, Sid, you are the hottest name in show business. You're the man who brought the Beatles to America go leave the agency. We'll rent an office on Park Avenue. We'll come up with the money and you start promoting full time. So Sid left the agency on good terms. He said, Oh, go to my office, the brand new office on Park Avenue, the first, call I get. It rings. It's a man named Andrew Lug Oldham. I said, Sid, how do you forget a name like that? That's like That's like half a paragraph. He said he calls me. He's calling me from England. And he said, Mr. Bernstein, he said, uh, I got a band here in uh, in London. They're working the bars. They're working the joints. And they said, hey, we'd like to get some work in New York City. If the Beatles went with Sid Bernstein, call Sid Bernstein. So he said, Sid, This is the reason for my call to you. Can you give my band, get them some work in New York? And Sid said, well, uh, Mr. uh," said, well, Andrew, what do they have a name? What do they call themselves? And he said they call themselves the Rolling Stones. And at that point, Sid brought the Rolling Stones into New York to play at Carnegie Hall. And then the Dave Clark Five, the Moody Blues, the Kinks, the Hermits Hermits. And they all said the same thing. Mr. Bernstein, they said the Beatles went with Sid Bernstein, call Sid Bernstein. So that all went to Sid, and he wound up with the British invasion.
1: Amazing. Uh, Absolutely amazing. Elliot, thanks for uh, letting us stroll down memory lane. I know you're very much in demand this week uh, because it is the 60th anniversary of the Beatles coming here and appearing on uh, Ed Sullivan. It's always a treat to talk with you. I hope we can do this again soon.
2: Now, I want to mention tonight I will be doing this presentation at the ballroom at Country Point in Plainview, Long Island. It's a private community, but I know they'll be listening, so come down and buy tickets. We're almost sold out. Frank, you're the best, and thank you for having me on.
1: Thank you, Elliot. Give them our best in Plainview, because from what I understand, Plainview is still wall-to-wall. Frank Moreno country. All right, we're going to take your calls in a moment. 800-848- 9222. 800-848- 9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. side at midnight with Frank Marano. You get a fast car I got a plan to get us out of here, been working at the convenience store. Managed to save just a little bit of money, won't have to drive too far. Just cross the border and into the city. You and I can both get jobs and finally see what it means to be living.
1: This is Tracy Chapman uh, performing Fast Car. You know, it's funny, she performed at the Grammys with uh, Luke Combs. This song on Sunday. And by the way, the Grammys ratings were through the roof. For some reason, the award shows look like they're making a comeback. The the Emmys ratings were up from last year. The um Grammys ratings were up from last year. The you know, uh, Golden Globes were up. Actually, no, the Emmys were not up, but uh they say that might have something to do with um with football, and obviously the big test is going to be next month when it comes to the Oscars, but the trend is, you know, for these award shows, they're making a comeback. They said there was over 17 million people that watched the Grammys. And I watched one. You know, I didn't watch all of it, but I watched a few minutes of it. I thought it was interesting that it was well-presented. There were a lot of firsts. They had stuff like this. They had the um, Billy Joel performing his new song. They had Miley Cyrus performing. There were some good musical performances. And also, obviously, anything involving Taylor Swift gets gets some buzz. And uh, the fact that she won and she announced her new album, I'm sure that played a role in that as well. But uh, now that song, Fast Car." Is now just going crazy, even though it's it's decades old, it's now topping the charts again because of the resurgence of interest in it due to the Grammy's performance. So uh good good for Tracy Chapman. I think it's great. alright four eight ninety two twenty two. right. 80-848-9222. If you want to comment, that's eight hundred-eight four eight ninety-two twenty-two. Um, <clears throat> but today. I was invited to Brian Kilmeade's annual holiday lunch that he has for this radio network. And I spoke to my wife about this because I feel something of an obligation to attend, even though I'm fighting this cold, as you can hear, which I got from her and my son and the uh, infirmary of people that I work with. But And I think it's going to be gone tomorrow anyway. So the lunch is taking place at one fifteen. So I couldn't really take mass transit in tonight because, I, and this is the confluence of all the things I'm dealing with. This weekend is my stepmother's birthday, so I want to get her something. I don't know what to get her. She, I think, like most adults, if there's something that uh, she wants, she goes out and buys it herself. So. I thought, what's something thoughtful that she would really enjoy that I can somehow procure? Well, she's a big fan of Frank McCourt, read both Angela's Ashes and Tiz. One of the key characters in Angela's Ashes is my friend Malachi McCourt. Now, Malachi McCourt is uh, not only, he's 92 years old, he's also survived hospice. I mean, the guy's going to outlive everybody. I think if you were taking bets a year ago, who was going to live longer, Carl Weathers or Malachi McCourt, you would have made a nice chunk of change because Malachi McCourt beat the odds. But anyway, <clears throat> um, John McDonough is going out to see Malachi McCourt today in the facility that he's in. And John McDonough is a great guy, great radio talk show host in his own right, and he's been on this show before. So I am going to drive out to where John McDonough lives, drop off Malachi McCourt's book for him, have uh, John go up to see Malachi and get Malachi to sign it for me so that I can then give it to my stepmother this weekend. So I needed the car today. So I said to my wife, How about this? How about this? What if I drive to work? Drive all the way out to Queens, drop off the book, drive home, give you the car so you can take our son to school, and then I will immediately take the bus back into Manhattan so that I can be there for this lunch. She says, What time is the lunch? one fifteen. Well, I need you to watch Carmine in the afternoon. You know, I'm not done at work until five PM. I need you to watch Carmine. I said, Oh. That's going to be tricky. I cannot watch Carmine if I'm at this Brian Kilmeade lunch. So we looked into a couple of babysitters. None of our babysitters were available, and so it does not look like there's any way that I can make this Brian Kilmeade lunch. So I text Brian, and uh, you know Tamara, who's his affiliate relations person, and happens to be a friend of mine for 20 years. And I apologized. I explained the situation. So Brian says. Why don't you bring him to the lunch? And I'm trying to figure out how this would work because he needs to be picked up from school at one. The lunch begins at 115. So there's no and the the his school is about 45 minutes away, at best case scenario, from the lunch venue. So I don't think I could make it there from at you know at 115. Let's say he says, All right, you can even just come 45 minutes late, which, you know, is kind of rude. I then then Carmine naps after school. Then he has to forego his nap. Okay, let's say he gets the nap in the car on the way to the venue, and let's say I'm able to find parking and um, walk walk into this restaurant with this 2-year-old. I can't imagine it's going to be a fun environment either for my 2-year-old son or everybody else that's going to be dining with this 2-year-old. So I told Brian that unfortunately... I am not able to make this lunch today. I do feel bad about it. I am sure he's going to bust my chops when we talk to him on uh, on Thursday, but uh, that's that's where we are. You know, I, he's got kids and stuff. He understands the difficulty of trying to procure child care. And uh, I told him, you know, I am sorry. There is just no way I could make it. He said, "All right, I am canceling the lunch now." I said, "Brian, I didn't want to say anything, but I am glad you said that. I was hoping that that's exactly what you would say." So that was uh, nice of him to cancel the lunch, but I don't know. I think they may still go forward with it, even without me. I don't know that for a fact, but we'll see. So, you know, these these midday lunches are just too difficult. I did ask if Matt Blaze could represent me at the lunch. He said, absolutely. So who knows? Maybe this could be, they say there's no such thing as a free lunch. This could be Matt Blaze's opportunity to test that theory. What do you think, Matt Blaze? I want to be on the, the fly on the wall when you bring Carmine. To that lunch. That's what I want. I mean, to. it would have been totally impractical. I, I think maybe Brian doesn't realize how little that he, he is and needs a high chair or oh, something like been, that. It would have been great because over the weekend I was watching the classic Michael Keaton, Mr. Mom, when he brings his kids to the job interview, and because they because of the babysitter. And that's just what I just thought of of you with the stroller with Carmine going into this luncheon with all these people. Uh, in, in entertainment, and here you are having to calm him down. He's running around. Yeah, he's throwing he's, he's, things. Yeah, he's, he's throwing sh- salt shakers and, and utensils, and you're just following after him. Now, that's what I want to see. And now his thing is, you know, we put him in the sleep sack when he wants to nap, When you know, he, when he goes to sleep or, or when he naps, he, we, he goes in the sleep sack over his pajamas. Now, when he wakes up from his nap, he wants to keep his sleep sack on. And we, my mom got him a bathrobe. Because, you know, for you be like daddy, you wear a bathrobe. You you understand the need to be cozy. He doesn't want to wear the bathrobe. He just wants to wear this sleep sack all afternoon. He looks ridiculous. Running around the house all afternoon, playing cars and reading books with his sleep sack on. Yesterday, we were reading all these books. You know what his idea of a fun time reading these books is? Taking them out of the shelf and having me put them back. He did that with about 12 books. Then he finally settled down. We read a couple, but I don't get the sleep sack thing. So I apologize to Brian Kilmeade and his listeners, but I will not be at this lunch today. Keep asking questions.